And this week, uh, we'll be placing our attention on Luke chapter 15. Um, My sermon title is A Matter of Perspective. So with that, I want to just invite you to take out your iPad, or maybe you're on your computer, or if you have a Bible at hand, to join me as we read the scripture. Now this morning, the, the scripture is a little bit long. It's, um, it's the story of, of the, lost, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and ultimately the lost son. But um, we're going to focus on the lost son this morning, so let's just read that first story. Let's read that first story. I'm reading from the New, from the new Living Translation, and I'm starting at verse 11. And the word of God says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to his father, said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party begins. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, He heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I have slaved for you. And never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all the time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. 
Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by, fill, by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always, always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so Jesus is in this place. He has a mixed congregation, a mixed crowd. The Bible says that there are some notorious sinners and tax collectors, as well as some teachers of the law and some Pharisees. And the Bible also lets us know that the mood is a little bit rough. The, the Pharisees are agitated, they're irritated, they're annoyed that Jesus is having a meal with sinful people. But this was nothing new for Jesus. People were always getting upset at him for what he did or for what he did not do. You see, the day before, he was uh, eating at the, leading, at the leading Pharisee's house. And then today he was eating with sinners and sharing a meal and, and preaching to them. In my mind, I imagine the Pharisees saying, make up your mind, like, where do you stand? Are you with us or are you against us? Because for the Pharisees, it was hard to follow Jesus' way of doing things. They couldn't understand his perspective of how he could do things that were traditionally against their laws. And so Jesus, being this fabulous communicator, a person who can read people, he does the next best thing that anyone can do when there's irritation in the room. He starts telling stories. And he tells three stories. One about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and one about a lost son. Now what's interesting about the first two stories is that they're what-if stories. Now, this is a technique used by writers today that help lay the foundation for what will eventually become a movie, will become a book, or a short story. You see, writers, when they get writer's block, they start playing this what-if game. And what it is is basically that's it. They, they will ask themselves a question, the question, what if, They'll answer the question and see where this story, these answers, take them. Some of the greatest cinematic stories have come from answers to some of these questions. Let me see if you can guess some. I know we're not all together, but see if you can guess some of these, some of these stories. What if a nuclear submarine was ordered to launch their nuclear arsenal onto the world? Crimson Tide. What if a little boy saw dead people nobody else saw? Sixth Sense. Or what if the world we live in is actually a computer simulation? That's the Matrix. And Jesus employs this what if question to lay the foundation for what is going to be one of the greatest stories ever told about the heart of God and what God's kingdom is really like. And so he starts with the first one. He starts with the, the, the first story and he says, what if 
What if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost? Well, what if he leaves 99 to go find one? What if he goes into the wilderness by himself? What if when he finds the sheep, instead of being annoyed, he's so excited and he puts it on his shoulders? And what if when he gets home, he throws a huge party because he found his sheep. Now, hopefully, the, the sheep isn't the meal. Well, let's continue on. Well, what about the, 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 para, the story of the lost coin? What if a woman who had 10 coins lost one? What if she cleaned her house, turned her house upside down looking for it? What if she just swept and swept and swept, and when the sun went down, she turned on the lamp? Because she was still looking for this coin. And what if she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her girlfriend, she calls her neighbors, and she throws a huge party because she has found her coin. See, these are really great storylines in my mind because who really leaves a hundred sheep to find one? I mean, if you had a hundred dollars and you lost one bill, how many of us would really be all that nervous about that? We'd say, well, I still got 99. I still got 99, right? What's, what's losing one? Or what about having 10 coins and losing one? We would be looking at the fact not about what we lost, but about what we have. And so Jesus, he's building this story. He's building uh, this, 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 this story that is going to literally blow the minds away of his listeners. And the reason it's going to blow their minds away is for two reasons. It's, one of them is going to be, it's because of the reaction of the father. And the second reason is, which I, it just blew my mind actually when I, when, I, when I came to this thought was, the son that was lost and found doesn't bring anything back to the table. Now, what do I mean? What do I mean with that? It means that in the previous two stories, the two items that were lost actually added something back to the owner's life. The sheep produced something for them. The coin was, was an inherit. It was, it was there, it was a dowry. The, the, both people would get something out of it. But this lost son, when he comes back, he brings nothing. He has nothing to offer. And so I, I want you to try and understand this, this story in terms of hearing it for the first time. Jesus' audience are tax collectors, notorious sinners, Pharisees, and people who studied the religious law. And so he go, Jesus now goes into this, this story, the story about the lost son. It's an epic cinematic story that Luke wants to, that Jesus really, that Luke wants to just emphasize. Now, back then, when Luke was writing his books, there weren't any breaks. But I, I just want to give you a picture of, of the emphasis that Jesus had on this story and what Luke felt out of all the stories he could write, why this was so important. There's 32 verses in our Bible that are dedicated to chapter 15. And 21 of those verses 
is the story of the lost son. There are seven verses dedicated to the lost sheep and only three verses dedicated to the lost coin. Which in my mind, it makes sense because Luke, although he was a physician, I think at his core, he was an evangelist. For Pete's sake, he wrote the book of Acts. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a great book. And so Luke has this heart for people, he, for, the, for the outsider. He has a heart for those who are called not enough and less than. And he wants his readers to understand that God's kingdom has nothing to do with the kingdom that, we, that they are living in. You see, because God's kingdom is for the poor, it is for the humble, it is for the outcast, and it is for the outsider. Now, Luke probably had an idea what it was to be an outsider. Um, As a physician, he was at the top of the ladder, so to speak. I mean, when wealthy people, when people of of distinguished careers, when they were sick, it was him they called to tend to their sicknesses. But eventually, Luke becomes a follower of Christ, and those phone calls stopped coming. See, he was, he mixed in, and, and he mixed with different crowds, but now the crowd that, that once had accepted him was no longer accepting him. So Luke understood this feeling of being an outsider. And Luke knew that when you're an outsider, you're the only person in the room looking in. It's your opinion that it's different. It's your, you feel lonely because no one really connects with who you are. But Luke is saying, no, no, no. I want you to know that you do belong because he wants his readers to understand that. As a matter of fact, he says, God's kingdom is for you. Blessed are the poor for the kingdom of heaven is yours. And then he said, and then, I mean, he's wanting to convey that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life because Jesus came to this world that they may have life and have it full. The outsiders were the they, they were the blessed ones, they were the whoever's. But in order to have this kind of, this view, you have to leave your own view behind and take on a different perspective. It has to be God's perspective. Three men were hiking through a forest when they came upon a large raging river. Needing to get to the other side, the first man prayed, God, please give me the strength to cross the river. Poof. God gave him strong arms and strong legs, and he was able to swim across that river in less than two hours and only nearly died twice. Now, after witnessing that, the second guy prayed, God, please give me strength and the tools to cross the river. Poof. God gave him a rowboat. He gave him strong arms and strong legs. He was able to cross in about one hour and only capsized once. Seeing what happened to the first two men, the third man prayed, God, please give me the strength, the tools, and the intelligence to cross the river. Poof. He was turned into a woman. She checked the map 
hiked up about a hundred yards upstream and walked across the bridge. It's a matter of perspective, right? It's the ability to put things in their right place. You see, when we don't put things in their proper place, things that aren't so big become so big, they become so apparent that we actually become fixated on them to the point that it determines how we react, how we respond to certain situations. We become so obsessed. We become so obsessed, Brenda, with that one thing that it literally determines our emotions and sometimes it even alters the way we view God. In other words, what I choose to think about determines my mood. Let me give you this example. If my husband helps me clean the house every Friday, he can basically get anything he wants out of me. Now, if my husband doesn't help me clean my house, our house, or any part of the house on a Friday and decides to go golfing, let's just say that things are a little bit tense at home, which is really dumb because 99.9% of the time my husband helps me clean, he helps me cook, he helps me go shopping. And But because I am so fixated on what I want and what I need in that moment, all that goes out the door and I forget everything that my husband does for me and our family. I become, my perspective becomes very narrow. And so as I reread the story of the prodigal sons, because there's two sons in this story, Perspective started to jump out at me. I started to see that the Pharisees, their reactions, instead of being, instead of recognizing that they were in the presence of Jesus, they're mad. And why are they mad? They're mad because he's eating with sinful people, not realizing that they're sinful themselves. The tax collectors and the notorious sinners, they're unsure because they're not sure that the kingdom is even accessible to them. And then you have the younger son. He's mad because he wants what he wants. And then the older son, he's mad because his dad hasn't met the expectation that he had placed on him. And the only person who is not mad in this entire story is the father. You see, the father is the only one who isn't mad at anyone because his perspective is not based on feelings and emotions. His perspective is not based on how people choose to react or not react towards him. The father's perspective is based on a bigger picture, which is he wants to get his son back home. The father's perspective is to get us into the kingdom of God. You see, God's perspective is, I will do whatever I need to do to get my kids back with me. And so Jesus starts his story, and he starts off by saying, uh, I'm going to compare two sons and a father. Now the younger son, he was... He comes to his dad and he asks, 
Dad, I want my inheritance from you now. Now, as I read this and I was thinking about it, these stories of as when I was a kid came rushing back into my mind. And there's one story in particular. My, mo- my parents have four children, and we're all about maybe a year and a half separated, right? So my mom's hands were always full. And any time we went to the store, my mother was very clear. Don't ask me for anything. Not because she didn't want to give it to me, but there was four. If you bought one, you had to give four. And we were poor. That was that. But I, what I specifically remember to this day were the times that we would go and visit other families. My mom would sit all four of us down in the car right before we got to the door, like right before we're going to get out of the car and go to the door, and she would say, don't ask for anything, don't do anything, and you better sit right next to me the whole time we're there. And all four of us are just looking at her like this, like, okay. I mean, we're petrified. And we'd wa- say, yes, Liz knows what I'm talking about. I know you, I can see you, Liz. I, yeah, I know you get me. And so we'd march into the house. My dad would sit, my mom would sit, and all four of us would sit according to age right next to them. And we, and this is adult conversation, and we know there's other kids in the house, but we're sitting there because my mom said, don't you ask to leave, don't ask to use the bathroom, don't you dare ask for food, don't you dare ask, hey, can we go? You do, you just don't ask. And then the, the host would come and she would say, hey, do you guys want a cookie or something to eat? And all four heads would just look at my mom. And if she said yes, we could say yes. The son is asking his father for his inheritance before he dies. This, in this culture and time, is equivalent to really telling his dad, I need you to die. I want you to be dead so I can get what I want. And, and if you read the text even a little bit more deeper, he's not really even asking. He's actually demanding, demanding that his father gives him his part of the inheritance. He doesn't want it two weeks from now. He doesn't want it uh, tomorrow. He wants it now. And so the young man, uh, there was something in the young man's psyche that, that had caused him to think that there was something that was missing in his life, that there was something better out there than what he had at home. But when you read the text, the guy actually had a pretty plush life. The text, the text gives us indication that, that he had servants in the house, that they were land and animal owners, that there was an abundance of food and robes and sandals and rings. But for some reason, all that was not enough for him. Somehow in his mind, he had this perspective of, I know what's good for me. I've lived with myself long enough. I know what I want. I'm smart enough to make it on my own, which I, which I think is really an interesting idea because it's not even the money he made. It's the money his dad made. But we're not going to judge him hard because we all know what it's like to want something and be so fixated on it that we can't see straight. In her column, Ask Marilyn, Marilyn Von Savant 
gave an interesting perspective on contentment. One reader wrote in about a unique experiment she had conducted after being dissatisfied that her neighbor's yard looked better than her her yard. And so she did what very few people ever do. She walked across the street and went into her neighbor's backyard. And from that vantage point, she looked at her yard. And then she says, and when I looked, when I looked at it, I realized that my grass was actually greener. Why does this occur, she wrote to Mar- ask Marilyn. And Marilyn replied, the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence because you're not close enough to see the dirt. Do you see, most of the time, things look better for others simply because we can't see the dirt. You see, that dream job that you wanted somehow became a nightmare. That boyfriend, girlfriend that you cried and prayed for to God to send, now you pray and you cry that God will take that person away. The bigger house, the nicer car, the larger compensation package, they all looked really great until you got close and you saw the dirt. The son is pressuring his father to give him what he believes is owed to him. Now, from the father's perspective, he actually has two options. Two options that are culturally and traditionally acceptable for the time. For his lack of respect, in, for his lack of respect, he can actually beat his son and he can kick him out of the house. Now, again, try and remember that there is an audience that is listening to the story for the first time. And, the, and, and so when Jesus, when, 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 when Jesus continues on to the, with this story and you realize that the father doesn't do any of these things. In fact, he does the complete opposite is what the Bible says. At a cost to himself, he shows an extraordinary amount of love that would have left his audience speechless. You see, the father's lack of action is extraordinary. Extraordinary. It is an unheard of reaction to the son's requests. You see, when we when we remove ourselves from from our own perspective and we look at God's perspective, it can actually surprise us. You see, when we look at things from God's perspective, He can actually calm storms in our life when we don't even have the faith to do that. He can actually take our doubt and give us something to believe in. He will actually tell us, give me your doubts, your cares, and I will carry them for you. That is God's perspective, church. And then the the, the word says that the father divides his wealth amongst both the boys. And he divides the inheritance. And he divides the inheritance at his own jeopardy. You see, in giving his inheritance to, to his sons, he loses control of what actually happens to his finances. And he's no longer in charge. I want us to remember this morning, church, that just, bega- just because God permits certain things, it doesn't mean that he approves of them. Let me say that again. Just because God permits certain things, it doesn't mean he approves of it. 
Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. So can we get a little real right now? You see, technically, when I turned 18, I'm an adult. And as an adult, I can do what I want. Technically. Technically. And as an adult, I can do adult stuff. Is it spiritually beneficial for me to be doing adult stuff while I'm 18? Probably not. I mean, technically at 21, I can drink alcohol. And I can drink as much as I want. But spiritually, should I? Is it appropriate? Is it beneficial? Church, just because God allows certain things to happen in our lives, let us be careful to think that it is a blessing from God. Sometimes he allows it to happen beyond a technicality. Verses 13 through 16 are minor details uh, that Luke shares with us in this story. He tells us that because, and, and I want to just emphasize that the reason that he, he tells us these t- details are not to, to place our attention there, but they, they just kind of fill in the story. He's, he lets us know that it takes a few days to get the money. And I think maybe perhaps in that time, the, the dad and the son, are dad's trying to convince his son, hey, maybe change your mind. This isn't the way we, we need to do things. But um, the son also, he's, the, the Bible says that he, that he packs all his bags and he leaves, meaning he completely clears the house of any, any um, what's the word, any kind of remembrance of himself. He's cutting his ties off with his family. And then it says that the Bible, sa- the story goes on to say that he wastes his father's money on wild living. The money runs out. There is a famine in the land. And he has to actually not ask for a job, but he has to kind of beg for a job. And he's not getting enough to eat. And the job that he has is feeding pigs. The guy has hit rock bottom. But I want to remind us this morning that our rock bottom experiences are not the point of our story. You see, we are more than our past and our present and future mistakes. But when we lose sight of God's perspective, we end up doing things that under other circumstances we would never do. And we do this, I do this, because I have forgotten who I am. I do, I make my mistakes because I forget who God says I am. I make these mistakes because my perspective is based on what I want and I am not looking at God's perspective. You see, I start listening to the loudest voice in my head that says, I'm not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You don't have this. You don't have that. You're not smart enough. I don't do enough. I don't have enough. And I fixate on these small things and I forget who my God is. My challenges and mistakes do not change God's perspective about me. My mistakes 
do not change God's perspective about myself. You see, because God is more than enough for both of us. God's perspective is the one that matters the most family. And finally, we're, we get to, this, to, this, to the crux of Jesus' story in verses 17 through 32. It's not about the wild living. It's not the bad judgment. It's not even about the awful way the son treats his father at the beginning of the story. The Bible in verse 17, the story says that in verse 17, it says that the guy finally comes to his senses. Have you ever had that moment when you came to your senses? Well, let's listen as he says, the, boy, the young man, I imagine, he starts looking around and where are his friends? Gone. Where is the money? Gone. The beautiful women? Gone. The good life? Gone. The things that this man, this young man had fixated about and thought were better than what he had at home were gone. You see, sometimes God has to strip us down to the basic necessities so that we desire to go home because everything we have invested in, everything we thought that matters, really doesn't matter outside of God's perspective. At this point in the story, the original reader and listener is dead silent. They never had ever, had ever heard a story like this before. What kind of father will take a son like that back? What kind of father will not reject him the way the son rejected the father? What kind of father will forgive a son who has caused him so much pain? Oh, church... The, t the tax collectors and the notorious sinners who are listening to the good news for the first time, their minds start racing. They start thinking, you know what? I don't have to be held captive to my past and to my present or to my future because Jesus is saying, I can go home to my father. Go home, he says. Leave all the baggage behind. Go home and forgive those who have hurt you. Go home and ask for forgiveness of those who you have hurt. Go home. Go home. Go home to your father. The son. He's come to his senses and he's, he's ready to go home. He has this really sorry speech prepared. And he recognizes that, that he's made a mistake. He, he knows that he's hurt his father, but he has to, he, he wants to say something to him. And so he heads home. He heads home. You see, because I think that the young man thought, I may not be getting enough food out here, but I do remember when I was at my father's house, there was more than enough food. The servants had more than enough food, so you know there was enough food for the, for the owners of the house. You see, sometimes it is better to be a servant in God's house and, and to live a good life with God than to live in the house of the wicked. See, we're not told the distance this young man has to walk. We don't know. The only thing we do know is that the Bible says that still far off, the father saw him coming 
So what that, what that, the picture that that gives me is that, that God, that the Father was waiting. He was standing on the porch every single day, waiting and hoping and praying that his son or daughter would come back. When we've been at our lowest and no one else is around, the Bible says that God sees everything that we do. Wherever he goes, he is watching. And God keeps watching over us as we come and as we go, both now and forever. How far off are you today? Are you wanting to make your way back home? I want to tell you this morning, keep going. Because someone is, someone is waiting for you to come home. Someone is watching for you to come home. Someone is not tired of waiting for you to come home. Someone is hoping that you come home. That person doesn't care that it's the 2,000th time that you left and you're coming back. Your father is waiting for you to come home. The father doesn't have to see this young man clearly because see, a father knows his son. Parents always say that. I'd, I've always had um, awe for people when, back in the day when you could actually see new, newborn babies all laid out in this little room and a parent could just look at it and say, that one's mine. Well, the father knew his son and he said, that one is mine. And so the, the father decides to just bolt out from the porch and he starts running full force because off in the distance he sees his son and he wants to go and let him know, I've been waiting for you. And I, what I thought about that, I just thought, this is what Jesus did for us. That's what it meant for him, for the word to become flesh. He bolted out of heaven to come to meet you and I. You see, it wasn't a, culturally it, isn't a, it wasn't a dignified thing for a nobleman to run, but it wasn't dignified for the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords to come to the ghetto called earth. You see, it wasn't dignified for the Son of Man to carry the weight of my sins on the cross. It wasn't dignified for the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, to come and to come to this world and die for me, but he came running anyway. And what I had never caught before about Jesus, about this father running to his son, is that he comes bearing gifts. The Bible says he, he comes filled with two things, love, love and compassion. God's perspective on you and on me, even when we fall short of his glory and we are compelled to go home, the Father is running towards us with love and compassion. And the Father begins to smother his son. He wants the entire community to know that this young man, this young man coming home, is he is part of my family. And he wants his son to know that this is his home. The father has compassion for his son. And we know this because he's not concerned about the way he looks. He's not concerned about the way he smells. He sees the tiredness. He knows that this guy has been through a lot. And so he wants this community of people to know that his son matters, still matters to him. Now, traditionally in this community, when a person, in this culture, when a person left, left their family, they also cut ties with their community. 
And so um, the process of coming back was, was to be a humiliating process. They would go, they would line up on the streets as the, as the person came back and they would hurl insults and they would call them names and they would just give them a really bad time. And I believe that this father had compassion on his son, not just because of the experience the son had been through, but because this father knew that one day he would be walking a path all by himself with people insulting him, with people spitting on him, with people yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The very people that he had healed, the very people he'd given sight back to, the very people that he had given the ability to hear and to walk and to talk. And Jesus knew what that would feel like. And so this father runs to his son. And in this, and in this exchange, the, 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 the entire community is speechless. And, and the son is trying to, you know, give his sorry speech and say, Dad, I, I, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And the father is just like, yeah, okay, son, okay, son, hurry up, get the robe. I think he's going to change his mind, and I don't want him to. Get the sandals, get the ring. I want him to be focused. I want him to know that I am here for him. God's perspective of you and of me is higher than the one we have of ourselves, church. You are his child made in his image, and there is no way, there is no way that he is going to let you go. An interesting part of this, this speech that the, the, the young man had written, he says all of that speech except the last sentence. Take me on as a servant. Jesus doesn't let him say that. He doesn't let him. The father does not allow the son to finish that sentence because there is no way that the father is going to want his son to be a servant in his own house. Church, there is this opportunity for us this morning to be reflective about what we focus on, about what our perspective is. This morning, we, I, I hope I have conveyed the heart of God and what his kingdom is about This morning, I want to challenge each and every one of us to think where our perspective lies. We're living in turbulent times. We're living in crazy times. Am I fixated on who sits in in the house? Am I fixated on the numbers of who wins and who loses? Am I fixated on a mask or no mask? Am I fixated on the small things that do not matter because the only thing that matters is God's perspective. The only thing that matters is that God's perspective becomes my perspective so that I treat people the way Christ would treat people so that I give up my desires for God's desires so that I am a fully committed Christian, not just by the outside, but on the inside. Church family perspective matters. It matters. And I hope that this morning, 
as we go through our day and as we think where our perspective lies, that we pray that wherever our perspective lies, whether it's on the self, I know that's my challenge. I have to ask God, God, take me out of my head. Take me out of my heart. Give and, and replace my head and my heart with your perspective. Because anything that we, we give too much attention to, church, becomes our God. And there is only one God that needs to live in our hearts. And so this morning, I just, I just encourage you, church, to think about where your perspective lies. I want to ask you, wherever you are, to just bow your heads with me as we just thank God for his perspective. Gracious and loving God, thank you for choosing us to be your children. Father, forgive us for where we have failed to just take on our own perspective and have dismissed yours. Father, this morning, your children, your people, every single Christian, that wants to make you the number one and the center of our life is humbly bowing our heads before you. God, we need your perspective in our life. We, your church needs your perspective in order to lead your church needs your perspective in order to receive every single person that walks through these doors. Father God, replace our perspective with yours. Give us a heart that is yours. Give us a bird's eye view of what you have in store for us. And help us, dear God, more than anything, to trust your perspective. Because it's hard. We, we trust what we see. We trust what we touch. We trust what we know. And you, Lord, for whatever reason, we cannot touch you in the way we touch human things. We cannot see you the way we see human, human beings. And so God, show yourself to your people in such a powerful way that we will trust you blindly. Yes, God, because blindly we will hold on to you for more dependence. Blindly we will learn to trust your perspective. You are worthy of our praise, God. And for whatever reason that you determined, we are worthy of your love and your compassion. May that be our praise. May that be our song for this day. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.